0: Thank you, Mr. Larry, for that song, hallelujah, what a Savior. Let's take your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10, Luke 10. Sunday mornings, we're working through the Gospel of Luke, taking the time as God has seen fit, and we've come to chapter 10, and uh, I'd like to read uh, some verses here uh, as Jesus is giving instructions to a group of disciples who are going to be sent out. In Luke 10 and verse 1, after these things the Lord appointed other 70 also and sent them two and to before his face into every city and place where the he himself would come. Therefore said he unto them, the harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. Pray ye, therefore, the Lord of the harvest, that he would send forth laborers into his harvest. Go your ways. Behold, I send you forth as lambs among wolves. Carry neither purse, nor scrip nor shoes. Salute no man by the way. And into whatsoever house you enter, say first, Peace be to this house. If the son of peace be there, your peace shall rest upon it. If not, it shall return to you again. And in the same house remain. Eat, drink, eating and drinking such things as they give. For the laborer is worthy of his hire. Go not from house to house. And into whatsoever city you enter and they receive you. Eat such things as are, as are set before you. Heal the sick that are therein and say unto them, The kingdom of God is come nigh unto you. But into whatsoever city you enter, and they receive you not, go your ways out into the streets of the same, and say, Even the very dust of your city, which cleaves on us, we do wipe off against you, notwithstanding be ye sure of this, that the kingdom of God is nigh unto you. But I say unto you that it shall be more tolerable in the day for Sodom than for that city. Woe unto thee, Chorazin. Woe unto thee, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works had been done in Tyre and Sidon, which had been done in you, they had a great while ago repented, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you and thou Capernaum which are exalted to heaven shall be thrust down to hell. He that heareth you heareth me, and he that despiseth you despiseth me. and He that despiseth me despises him that sent me. Father, uh, Lord, would you give us uh, wisdom and the Holy Spirit, understanding, illuminate our minds to the words. Uh, who, these are words of life. They have power to transform our hearts. Uh, but, Lord, this has got to fall on receptive ears. It's got to fall on hearts that are receptive to the soil. And if there are hardened hearts and closed ears this morning that have come, maybe just out of duty or they've been invited, we're thankful they're here. Uh, Lord, with the Holy Spirit, uh, begin to plow up that, that heart and open those ears to the truth of God's word that is able to make us wise. That is able to um, to conform our heart and uh, change our lives into the image of your dear son. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. In 2013, a Netherlands-based nonprofit foundation called Mars One set out to fund a six billion dollar project. The project was to plant a colony of humans on the red planet of Mars by year 2023, September 11th, 2013. I have the article. The plan was to have doctors and teachers and athletes and farmers and steel workers and all kinds of background to travel to the planet of Mars and establish a colony. The one aspect that was stated that made this mission so interesting was that it was a one-way mission. Those on this mission would never return to earth. They started raising funds by collection, collecting applications ranging from as cheap as $5 to as expensive as $75 for applications. They also hoped to raise funds through a reality TV show that would include the training of the astronauts for the mission. Did you know that in the first 19 weeks of the application process, they received 202,000 applications and volunteers? I wonder how many wives bought tickets for their husbands. (laughs) People who were willing to leave this planet, knowing that they would never return. No really plan of even a rocket that was picked, or the type of hardware that would be used. Or to even figure out or ask the question, is it possible to live there? And yet 202,000 people volunteered and paid money for the application process. Jesus in Luke 10 is commissioning volunteers for a mission, a dangerous mission. A mission that will for many of them potentially be a one-way trip. In this chapter, over half the chapter will include Jesus's instructions to these Missionaries, disciples who are being commissioned. We find here the commissioning of 70. Luke is the only gospel that records for us this particular commissioning. This immediately follows Jesus' rebuke, as we've talked about in the weeks past, of John and his bad attitude against other disciples who were casting out demons in your name, but were not part of our group. This was also Jesus who rebuked John and James in the previous verses, correcting them of their wrong attitude concerning those who reject. Lord, you want us to call fire down from heaven and burn this city up for not accepting you. Jesus corrects their attitude knowing in verse 56 of the previous chapter, the Son of Man is not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them, teaching them a lesson of grace and compassion. James and John needed a little lesson in compassion. But he was also correcting a wrong eschatology, as we talked about last week. You see, the king was coming and the kingdom was near. But Jesus' direction towards Jerusalem was not at this time to bring about the kingdom. But to first suffer, bleed, be given over into the hands of sinners. As he told them on two occasions in chapter 9. That he would be delivered, he would suffer, he would die. And on the third day, he would rise again. So they were being sent out on a mission where the majority would reject the Messiah and the kingdom. And the disciples were a little confused on on the timing of the kingdom and the coming king. This commissioning follows the uh, the conversation with three potential disciples... Previously, Jesus on His way to Jerusalem as He's going with His disciples comes in contact with three other men. And Jesus uses them here as an example to help the disciples understand what they're coming up against. Last week, the one who came to the Lord and said, I will follow you anywhere and everywhere. As He says in verse 56... And Jesus reminds him the foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. You see, this one was preoccupied by the material reward, the earthly blessings and benefit. He was of the health, wealth, and prosperity type of people who were looking into the worldly benefits that if I give my money now, what will God give me back today? If I give my life for Jesus, what will I receive in return? A nice house, a nice car, a nice retirement plan. And Jesus is saying, I can promise you nothing in this life. But I guarantee you it will be worth it in the next. The other one who comes to Jesus is preoccupied with his plans and his agenda. Jesus says, will you follow me? In verse 59. And he says, Lord, I will follow you. But first let me go home and bury my father we heard about last week as we just showed this man first had his agenda i'll follow you but first let me let me get my things in order let me deal with some personal matters and when i have time for you later i'll pick you back up on it after my plans lord then your plans and jesus is telling let the dead bury the dead but you go And preach the kingdom of God. Jesus is not ignoring burials and funerals. Jesus is not saying you as Christians and people in ministry. Should disrespect your parents and not take care of your affairs. Or the affairs of your parents. That's not what he's saying. He's getting to the heart of this man. He was more concerned about his inheritance. And what was going on back at home. And his plans and his preparation, and making sure his plans were all in order, then he'll commit to following the Lord. Priorities. And then the last one that comes, one was preoccupied by a double heart and mind. Lord, I'll follow you, but first let me look back. And while looking back, I'll follow you. And Jesus says in verse 62, no man, having put his hand to the plow, looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. You see, this man was not wholehearted. He said, I'll follow you, but I also want to keep my eyes on my home. I don't want to quite say goodbye. He had one foot in in following Jesus and one foot in the world. One foot in one direction and one in the other. And he wanted to follow by looking back and he was pulled in two different directions. And listen, Jesus, when He asks you to come after Him, He asks you to leave all behind your nets, your boats, your plans, your directions, your future, and give it into His hands. Let Him lead. Trust in the Lord with all thy heart, and lean not into thine own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge Him, and He shall direct your paths. That's what it means to be a disciple. That we have to be willing to put Christ first. So when we come to chapter 10 and verse 1, it says, After these things the Lord appointed. After these conversations, after this process of Jesus who was headed to Jerusalem. Jesus then commissions missionaries. We're going to have here in a few weeks a missions conference. In our church, a Sunday through Wednesday missions conference. We'll have over 30 missionaries who have committed to go around the world. Those who are on deputation and those who are already serving overseas. One missionary family who will be honored on Monday night, I believe, for over 50 years of ministry service on the mission field. Praise the Lord. We will have some of our own missionaries who will come. We have some of our own missionaries that we've commissioned. Last week, we had a missionary family from to Germany uh, who was a member of our church. We've got a missionary family, the Tacons, who are in Italy that have been commissioned and sent out by our church. All of these 30 missionaries who will be here in a few weeks to enjoy the conference with us, they'll have their tables and booths out in the lobby and in the gym for that missions conference. But all of them have been commissioned by the Lord through the local church to go out into the foreign fields and serve God and preach the message of the gospel. That's a good, this is a good passage for a missions conference. But you say, well, But I'm not a missionary. Oh, You know, I'm I'm just um, I'm just an engineer. I'm just a security guard. I I serve in the military, or um, you know, I work down at Walmart or Target, or or uh, uh, I I sell cars, or I have a business, and uh, or I'm in school full time. I don't. I'm not a missionary. I'm not a pastor. I'm not necessarily a Sunday school teacher. So that means this passage must not be for me. Listen, I beg to differ. The Lord Jesus Christ here is commissioning all of those who are his disciples. Yes, there's a number of 70, a specific number that are sent here, but this is also a job that we need to keep our eyes and ears open to as well. The calling of the 70. Now this is different than chapter 1 our chapter 9 and verse 1. Flip back one page. Then he called his twelve disciples together, chapter 9, in verse 1. And he gave them power and authority over all devils and to cure diseases. And he sent them to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. And then in verse 3 down to verse 5, he gives them a similar set of instructions that we read about, about taking no stave or no, uh, no script or bread or money or bag, go from house to house, and when you enter and you eat, be hospitable. So we, we talked about some of those verses, but I want you to understand, this commissioning in chapter 10 and verse 1 is different than the commissioning in chapter 9 in verse 1. Matthew chapter 10 and Mark chapter 6 are parallel passages to Luke 9, talking about the sending out of the twelve in groups of two. This event recorded in Luke is distinct from the commissioning of the twelve. And because of that, there are some differences here for us to learn. Let me just point out a few things, uh, just some truths and just some facts from the passage that we have before we work into Jesus' words in verse 12. Notice that in this, there are no names given to these 70. You were probably with us, those of you who have been on this journey with us in the Gospel of Luke, when we were back in Luke chapter 6, Jesus gave us the list of 12 disciples that he chose and he appointed. And do you remember we walked through the names of those 12 disciples? They do seem to be grouped in twos. And threes, and you remember this ragtag group of misfits that they were—from a tax collector to a fisherman, from a zealot to um, to you know a Canaanite. These different ones who were who were mentioned in that list—all kinds of backgrounds. And you remember we talked about, it didn't seem like they were the best group for the next Navy SEALs of church planning. They didn't seem to fit in to the the elite of society that you would start a a new business with or or a new program with that you would pick out these type of men. And yet, Jesus picks out those men. Remember the main point is not about you, but about Him. God uses all kinds of people, all different types of people, but all of us are broken. All of us are in need of the Savior to change our heart. And these men that were listed in Matthew 6, that are commissioned in, or in Luke 6, that are commissioned in Luke 9, these 12 disciples, are a group of men who need a lot of work. We know their names. Some, we know a whole lot about them. Others, all we know is just their name and maybe a little bit of information about the background and a conversation here or there. However, in this chapter, we don't know who these 70 are. No names. Nothing about them. We're not even given a list here of who they are. Jesus now broadens His scope of disciples and who He's using, more than just the twelve. And we know that later in Acts chapter 1, Luke will write that there will be 120 in the upper room. That will include men and women who are waiting for the resurrection, waiting for the the sending of the Holy Spirit in the upper room. We know that on the day of Pentecost, there was a number of 3,000 that were converted from the first church. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 actually tells us post-resurrection, Paul says, there was as many as 500 disciples who saw Jesus in Galilee after his resurrection at one time. That means that Jesus had a large following. Now, yes, the numbers seem to be small, whether it's 500, 120, 70, or 12. However, there were much more than just the 12 disciples. That's my point to help you understand and think about that. How many of these 12 disciples, or these these 70 disciples, will stay with Jesus all the way to the upper room? Will some of these leave eventually? Will some of them get preoccupied later on and be disillusioned? Maybe like Judas, who, who were just part of the gang because it was a group to be a part of. If Jesus could have fakes and phony in the 12, do you think there could be fakes and phonies in the 70? I think there could be. This group may even include women. Now, don't kick me out of here. But are they all men? We know the women were included in the ministry of the Lord in the previous chapters. We saw that Jesus had a women's ministry. They're even given by name. There were women that were included in the 500 group in 1 Corinthians 15. There were women that were included in the 120 group in the upper room. Nothing here in the immediate text says that they are to preach Like the twelve were told in chapter 9 and verse 2 where they were commissioned specifically to preach. You say, hold on a second, what about verse 9? Well, look down at verse 9. They were commissioned to heal the sick, but they were to say unto them... The word preach is not used in this verse... It's just a conversation. In other words, they are to say in the cities and the places that they go that the kingdom of God is nigh unto you. So could we broaden this out to be a a mixed group? Potentially, possibly. We don't have to be um, narrow enough in this chapter to include the preaching, even though we know that probably did take place. So there could have been included in this group women who were going out just being testimonies for Jesus Christ telling people about the kingdom. I want you to notice also in this verse, in verse 1, after these things, the Lord appointed other 70. Notice the word other there. This word other, it means another of a different kind. Not the same as. Well, the same as what? Well, I believe he's, he's specifically setting this apart from the 12 in chapter 1 in verse 9. In other words, this is a different group of, of, uh, of messengers and missionaries than the 12 apostles who were sent out in the previous chapter. Um, they were sent to do some similar stuff. They're going to be healing and casting out demons. But they are also going to be proclaiming and telling people about the kingdom of God. However, there is an absence of the giving of specific authority and power, as was mentioned. And the apostles had a specific gift and calling for the church and for following Christ that is different than other disciples of Christ as well. And this seems to be a separate group. So this means that... That you don't have to be a missionary, you don't have to be an apostle, you don't have to be a a pastor or Sunday school teacher to hear the commissioning of telling others about the gospel. It doesn't have to be specifically to those who are called as their vocation to worldwide um, gospel preaching. Look at verse 3. He gives them a commission. Go your ways. The commission here is go. And it's an imperative and it's present active. This means while you are going, continue to live. Keep going. Go and keep going. This speaks of the urgency of the mission. Jesus had just told his disciples that the cross is coming Jesus' days on earth are numbered. He set his face to Jerusalem. He He is single focused to get to the cross. And he knows that. And he has an urgent message that he wants to send out to all these villages and these places around. And he tells them go and tell. Go, go, go. I'm reminded of a conversation we had with a few men after church on Wednesday night about paratrooping. Jumping out of airplanes in the military, and, uh, um, you know, there, once you get in the plane, I was, I was told, I've never done it, I was told, that you'll either go out by choice, or you're going to get pushed out, all right, that's the only way you're getting out of there, and uh, one one specific um, uh, a paratrooper uh, was, uh, um, uh, had to go up six times, and all six times, they were pushed, <laughs> So sometimes that's just what happens. And you get that uh, that green light. And the commander says, go, go, go. That's what Jesus is doing with these disciples. Time is brief. The kingdom of heaven is near. There's a message that people need to hear. So go and keep on going as he gives this commission. Notice here that he appoints them after these things the Lord appointed. This word is used again in Acts chapter 1 and verse 24. Specifically with the calling of the 12th disciple. Remember Judas hung himself at the end of the gospels. And in Matthew or in Acts chapter 1 there's another they recognize we need 12. And so they cast lots over two men, and the lot falls on Matthias to replace Judas as the twelfth apostle, the twelfth disciple. And the same word that Luke uses in this verse for appointment is the same word that's used of the appointing of Matthias as a disciple. In other words, this is a task. This person is lifted up. It's a selection to an office. And here the Lord Jesus Christ is, is using these, me, these men and women possibly to, as a distinct assignment with a task. Here's your assignment. Here's your job. Your name has been called. Now go. Go. Notice he says in this verse, If you look down after these things, the Lord appointed other seventy, and he sent them two by two before his face. How many of you remember in the last couple of weeks the reference to Jesus' face? Three times in three verses. Now, in this verse, Luke again uses the word face of Jesus. Remember that face that was changed on the Mount of Transfiguration that shined with light? Remember that face that was set, where his eyes were wrinkled, his, his lips were stiff, and he looked to Jerusalem, and it was that face of determination that the disciples saw, that realized that Jesus meant business, this was serious. And now Jesus is sending out these disciples to go before his face, These disciples before His face were going to show His face and they were planning to come into these cities and tell them that Jesus' face was coming. And they ought to be ready. I believe the representation of Jesus' face was being talked about here. That here these, these disciples were going into villages to prepare for Jesus who was to come into the village that they would eventually see the determination in the face of the Messiah. And they were to represent, they were to prepare the villages and the people for the coming of the Messiah. They were to represent His face. Um... I, I was thinking about uh, something I read about not too long ago and I, when I came to this passage. On April the 22nd, 2009, Linda Lowell put a piece of toast, cheese toast, into the oven, and when she pulled it out, she claimed to have seen the face of Jesus. She described it as shoulder-length dark hair, a faint halo and a sweet smile that looked so familiar on her toast. This is um, the Blue Ridge Times News, and there's also an article I read from the Associated Press who actually interviewed the lady. She saw the face of Jesus in her cheese toast snack, wanted to tell as many people in her community about her experience of seeing Jesus' face. Lo preserved her little cheese toast in a plastic container, covered it with paper, and put it on her dresser in her room because it reminds her that Jesus is always with her. She wanted others, and the article says, as of yet, there seems to be no sign of decay on the toast. Um, so that was like three days after uh, the article, uh, the, the lady found the toast. You know, there have been a lot of different people who have had, you know, these experiences of seeing, seeing Jesus' face in the clouds or on your cheese toast or in your eggs. Right? Listen, that's not the same thing as this. Right? Jesus Christ shines within the life Of believers. Our bodies are the temple of the Holy Ghost. We see the face of Jesus in the scriptures. As he is being revealed to us. As the word who has made flesh for us. We don't need a piece of toast. We don't need a cloud to show us. We don't need our scrambled eggs. To remind us that Jesus is with us. I don't need, mean to necessarily be facetious, but I think sometimes we are, we are so simple-minded in our understanding of Jesus' face, when we look and we realize we are representing Jesus' face. What do they see in your life? When you come across those around you, do you prepare them for the face of Jesus Christ? He commands them to go to every city. This is a goal that Jesus has, to go to Jerusalem. And on His way to Jerusalem, He will stop off at city and village along the way. And so He sends these messengers ahead to prepare for His coming. He is a king. He has a kingdom. And He wants them to prepare for His kingdom. What is the message of preparation for the kingdom repent, John says, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And these disciples who will go out from village to village preparing for the face of Jesus to come into that village, they are to represent the gospel of Jesus Christ who brings peace and comfort and hope to those who turn their hearts over to Him wholeheartedly. Maybe you're here today and you don't know Christ as your Savior. Listen, can I introduce you not to a piece of toast? but can I introduce you to the Savior of the world who came and died for your sins. His name is Jesus of Nazareth. He came, suffered, bled, and died upon a cross, was buried, and on the third day he rose again, and He ascended up into, the, up into the right hand of the throne of God. And one day He's coming again. And the Scripture says it appointed unto man once to die, and after this you'll stand before His face. And Paul said in Philippians chapter two, "It is there before his face that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. You can do it by choice, which is what God would be willing, not that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Or you can do it by force. When you stand before that great white throne, And God, as your judge, will ask you, why did you reject my son? Will you accept him this morning before it's too late? Eternity is a long time. Make ready, the king is coming. Notice in this verse, they're sent out two by two in groups of twos. Again, just like he did in chapter 9 with the 12, he sent them out in groups of pairs. Here he takes these 70, 35 groups of twos to go out. Now it's interesting, why does he do that? I believe he does that specifically because Ecclesiastes says, Two are better than one. You remember the chord? that is wrapped up together, there is an accountability and there is a need that we have for one another. There are no long rangers in the ministry of God. Now, I recognize there are missionaries that are sent out often by themselves. But I believe that the pattern that they are sent is in connection to a local church or a group of people who, who will keep them accountable. Jesus knew that if he sent out 70 individuals, he would have them in 70 different places at one time. Instead, he split them in half. He put them in pairs because he knew that they needed one another. The importance. Can I tell you today, there is strength in numbers and you need the body of Christ. It, it, those who, who do home church, those who feel like that they can, they can um, you know, worship God and get to know God all by themselves, they don't need anybody else to tell them what to do. That's an independent spirit. And even amongst the 12 disciples, Jesus was teaching them and this 70, they needed one another. You need the corporate body of Christ. You need that relationship and the accountability because we are sent into a dangerous area. We'll see that in just a moment. So, what will we face? What will these 70 face when they are sent out? And I just, I just have two points that I want to draw your attention to and then we'll close this morning. First of all, we will face a difficult task. Look at verse 2. As he sends these 70 out before him from place to place, from city to city, to represent his face, to tell others of the gospel, he commissioned them to go in verse 3. He says, the task that you're going to do is hard. He says in verse 2, the harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. The word harvest and laborers, speaks to us of good old-fashioned work. I passed several fields on the way to church, several cotton fields and fields that are already turning brown. And when I look out onto those fields, I recognize that all of the time back in the spring, when the ground was tilled up and those combines went through, after work, some of those men probably have use this as their second job or second portion, late into the night will plow and plant. And then the water that, uh, that they spend on those fields and the sprinkler systems that are out there all summer long during the hot portion. And now it's turning brown and it's getting ready for harvest next month. And they will come in and they will harvest all, all late into the night. They only have a short window to be able to get it when it's just right, when it's not, not too wet. I remember going with a family in Wisconsin out across the field from their front porch and there the, the corn um, combine was out there and we drove out there in the, in the truck and got out and, and the guy got out of the combine and showed us what was going on and how the corn came in and putting it, how it was put into the, to the 18 wheelers that were that pulled out there and just the process that, that was going on. It takes good hard work to harvest the field. It's not for the lazy. Farming has always been, even with modern technology, hard work. And God wants us to understand that what He has commissioned His disciples to do is a difficult task. Look at the odds in this verse. He says here, the harvest is great, yet the laborers are few. Jesus is just stating a fact. He sees people in these villages, in these cities, as a great number of people. What are they being harvested for? Is Jesus is using this terminology. One commentator points out there is a different, this seems to be a different type of harvest than what Jesus saw in John chapter four. Turn over in John chapter four. The story in John chapter 4 follows the woman at the well where Jesus meets this woman in Samaria at Jacob's well, tells her that he has living water, and then commissions her in verse 16 to go and call your husbands and come back. And the woman answers and and Jesus tells her, and then she leaves in verse 25 that I know the Messiah comes and he is called Christ and these things. And she goes out and and runs away. And the disciples come back in chapter 4 in verse 34. And Jesus said unto them, My meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish this work. Say not that there are yet four months, then cometh the harvest. Behold, I say unto you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields, for they are already white unto harvest. And in verse 39, and many of the Samaritans of that city believed on him for the saying of the woman which is testified. So there in John chapter 4, Jesus is looking out over a crowd of people who are coming out to receive the gospel. A city who is going to be receptive, whose hearts are now ready. The soil has been planted and he's going to reap souls for the kingdom of God. And Jesus says, look up, disciples, look at this city, and look how receptive. All I did was talk to one woman, show her compassion and love in her sin, showed her the, the answer that is the Savior, and that I have living water, and she's going to go back into this city and tell all of these people, and they're going to come out, and there's a harvest that's ready to be reaped. Jesus is showing his disciples the vast number of people who are ready to hear from the Samaritan woman the gospel. However, in, in this text in Matthew 10, Jesus is actually sending his disciples into, a, into villages and city cities, where majority of them will reject him. That's why I read the remainder of the verses, because within this context, he's sending these disciples into a place where many will put up signs that say "No trespassing." The harvest indicated here may be a similar harvest to what Jesus is talking about in Matthew 13. Turn over to Matthew 13 and let's see that harvest. In Matthew 13, Jesus is preaching about the kingdom and the mysteries of the kingdom. And Jesus makes reference to a harvest in Matthew 13 in verse 30. He's been talking about the kingdom of God, and he talks about the servants and the householder in verse twenty-seven and then twenty-eight. He said, The enemy hath done this, and the servant said. He's given a parable in verse twenty nine. And he said, Nay, lest while they gather up the tares, ye root up also the wheat with them. Verse thirty Let them grow together until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest I will say to the reapers, gather ye together first the tares, and bind them in bundles to burn them. But gather their wheat into my barn. Look down at verse 38 of this chapter. The field is the world. The good seed are the children of the kingdom, but the tares are the children of the wicked one. And the enemy that sowed them is the devil, and the harvest is the end of the world, and the reaper's are the angels. Now Jesus is talking about in this chapter he's talking about a harvest for judgment. He's talking about a vast group of people who have hardened their heart to the truth, who have rejected the Messiah and rejected the message of the kingdom of God, rejected salvation. He's talking about broad is the way that leads to destruction. And wide is the gate, and many there be that go after. And when I come to Luke chapter 10, I know oftentimes the harvest metaphor from Matthew and John is used in a positive light. I wonder if in the context Jesus is seeing a vast number of people who are dark, whose hearts are closed. And Jesus says to these 70... Go out. And your message is going to fall on more deaf ears than it will receptive. Can I say this morning, if your heart is hardened to the things of the Lord, you are in a group of tares that one day, the Bible says in the book of Joel, where God will pull out his sickle and in judgment will come to this world and sweep it across the harvest fields And all of those who have rejected him will be cast into a lake of eternal fire. A message of judgment is not a popular message in our culture today. But it is what the Lord says. And the only way to escape that judgment is to look to the cross of Jesus Christ. And open your heart to the truth. Realize that you're a sinner in need of a Savior, just like the woman at the well. And give your life to Jesus Christ. Because one day, you'll stand before His face and either unashamed because you've trusted Christ and He is your advocate, or ashamed and experienced the judgment of the wrath of God upon you. The harvest truly is great. It's a difficult task. The harvest that is great indicated here may be a vast number of people who are in darkness. Many of these towns and these villages who were coming out just for the healings, just for the show, just to be entertained will one day come out in that same crowd in Jerusalem and cry out, crucify him, crucify him. And all Jesus is left with is 120 in an upper room. The laborers are few. We're outnumbered. The fact that the harvest is great and the laborers few is both sobering and discouraging. There are so many moving towards hell, lost and in darkness, and yet so few of us who are trying to reach them. Is that a little bit discouraging for you? As it is for me. It should be sobering to us. We are few in number. There are 8 billion people in the world. As of 2016, there were just over 600 million in the world who claim to be evangelical Christians. That number, I know, is going down every year. Within that 600 million probably many of those are professing evangelicals but who are not actually born-again believers. So that number is probably even much smaller than that. Eight billion people in the world. And there are less than 600 million who claim Christianity or at least evangelical Christianity. Listen, folks, the odds are against us. We have a difficult task But I want to tell you this morning, we have a God who loves to do great things with little people. (laughs) He loves to take the odds and take one person and see a vast group of people and a whole community changed for Jesus Christ. All it takes is one. All it takes is a David. All it takes is a Gideon. All it takes is a group of fishermen who talk, fishermen talk, who are willing to give their life to Christ. All it takes is five barley loaves and two small fishes. What do you think Jesus is teaching these disciples? It's not about the numbers. Yes, that can be discouraging that there are so many people who are blinded, who will not receive truth. And yet we have a God who loves to do the impossible. So keep your eyes On him. What is the command? He does give us a command here. In this verse. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest. That he would send forth labors into his harvest. Pray. Pray. He is the one who calls. He is the one who sends. He is the one who gives the power. The workers are the ones who are now asking for more workers. Pray that God would send. Edwards indicates that this word send is stronger force than just the normal word to send out. These are not volunteers, but they are actually being dispatched. They are being drafted. In other words, we are to pray and ask God to draft more people. It's not like there's a slew of people saying... I'll go, I'll go. No, God has to come into their heart and prick their heart and say, you go. Will you go? And we are to pray and ask God to pick out and to choose and to, vol- and, and to uh, dispatch people who will go into the harvest and see the harvest field who are white. Have you ever considered that maybe you are the answer to your prayers? Are you willing to do more? In just a few weeks, we'll have a man and his wife named Simon Okada who will be coming for our missions conference. He is a Japanese businessman who came to Milwaukee, Wisconsin, who was the top in his business department, who goes back and forth from Milwaukee to Japan. In his mid-50s, late 50s, I think 57, 58, who has had a lucrative business, who's come to America, is a successful businessman who's only a few years from retirement, who in a missions conference a few years ago walked the aisle with his wife and chose to leave it all to go back to Japan as a church planner. He knows the language already. But a majority of his life is already behind him. But he's willing to go. Praise the Lord for those who are willing to say, Lord, I may be the answer to my own prayer. Are you willing to go? As we see this task that has been given to us, it is a difficult task. But if you are willing... I would no doubt see that in a crowd this size that God may be already calling your name. Maybe to the mission field, maybe to ministry work, maybe to full-time Christian service. You may already be in a career and already down a path, but God may be pricking your heart and calling your name this morning saying, "I want you to go." Are you willing Father, I pray as we close this morning. Lord, we are faced with a task that is very difficult. The odds are against us. And Lord, I ask, Lord, this morning that you would help us not to get our eyes so much on the odds. It would be sober to us and help us understand the importance of the hour and the urgency our hearts would be broken with compassion for those who are lost and dying but lord that we would have a willingness to say here am i send me lord maybe within this group a a most appointed and specific application to this message maybe a young person or an adult who who you are are dealing with them, you're calling their number and calling their name for specific missions work or ministry work. Within the days ahead, would they pray and would they be willing to go if you're calling them? Would they not be able to get away from that burden? But Lord, these others, many in here, if um, majority of these who... You've called into other forms of vocation, but yet they have a responsibility. They have a job that while they are uh, raising their family and and providing for their home, they are to be telling others of the Messiah and the peace that he can bring to their life. Many of our family members, many of the people we come across don't want to hear it. and Many of those will close the door on our face, and tell us not to talk about it anymore, maybe even mock or jeer us. Lord, I pray that we would be faithful. Would we recognize that we need one another? We can't do this alone. And we are to keep our eyes on Jesus Christ, knowing that you are the one who gives us the ability to to accomplish the task. It It is a task that is far beyond our ability to accomplish. But yet, with your help, we can storm the gates of hell. Would you call forth believers in this church and in this community here to be witnesses for Jesus Christ? Men, women, boys, and girls. With heads bowed and eyes closed, I'm going to ask if Stephanie would play a hymn of invitation. Would you stand to your feet with your heads bowed and eyes closed? God, maybe is dealing with your heart family member, a friend, a co-worker who's dark and lost or maybe today you are lost and God is convicting your heart before it's too late. Will you trust Jesus as your Savior? Will you go as a disciple and tell others about the Messiah? This is an opportunity for you to make a decision to come to a point of response and God is working in your heart before we leave today you need to take an opportunity to just cry out to the Lord as she plays through one more time if you don't know Christ the pastoral staff we'd love to talk to you one of the deacons we'd love to talk to you and share with you how you can know Christ as your Savior I'm sure there's someone here doesn't know Christ is not sure of their salvation. Don't leave this building today without the assurance of knowing your sins are forgiven and Jesus is your Lord and Savior. The song says, "All to Jesus, I surrender. I surrender all. Are you willing?" Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the time we can be in God's Word. Lord, would you take disciples here in in this church, and would they go before your face, representing your face, showing Jesus Christ in their life, and telling others of the hope of the gospel. Lord, we've been sent to a difficult task in a world that is growing in antagonism against truth. In a world that is getting darker, the more people that are born are born in darkness. And our numbers are dwindling. And standing for truth is not popular anymore. It's a difficult task. The harvest is great and the laborers are so few. Would we be upon our knees praying that you would call more laborers? As we think about the missions conference coming down around the corner, would, would our hearts be pricked by by these testimony of these people who have surrendered to ministry and would we be be behind them and be willing to go if you call. Help us as we go away this week that we would serve you faithfully. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. God bless you. You are dismissed.